Welcome to Plenary Session. This is the video and audio edition. You're going to get audio on the usual Plenary Session feed. You're going to get video on YouTube. If you're listening on the Plenary Session feed, I'm doing my ASCO roundup. I'm going to try to cover all of the papers, although I'm getting a little bit tired. I'm going to try to cover all the papers. If you're a fellow doing a journal club, this is going to be invaluable preparation, but I encourage you to tune into YouTube because I've got visuals, I've got graphics. The audio just isn't the same for this session. So go to YouTube if you're listening to the audio feed. We'll be back to pure audio sometime soon. Today we've got a big paper. We've got Destiny Bress 4. Trastuzumab Duruxtican in previously treated her to low advanced breast cancer. This is the talk of the town. I heard it got a standing ovation. People were standing up and clapping and, um, well, you'll see what I have to say about it. I think this is a hard one for me. I spent a lot of time thinking about this paper, reading this paper. I even had my colleague, Timothy Olivier, he read it as well. He gave me some thoughts. I pulled together a lot of this and, um, at one point you'll see how we both think the same. Let's hit it. All right, let's do it. You came here for this, and uh, I hope it doesn't disappoint. My goal is that uh, I hope I say something you haven't yet thought of. That's my only goal. But you're going to find that that uh, we all have our limits. And uh, for a man who likes to look at data, when you don't show me the data, that's my limit. So let's hit this paper. Trastuzumab duruxtecan previously treated her to low advanced breast cancer. This is the destiny, the destiny breast trial. This is what it looks like. Obviously, you know this. You probably probably could draw this in your sleep. That's the kind of preparation we give in medical school, this kind of stuff, this hard-hitting, important stuff. Now, what do you see here? You see an antibody that's uh, directed against HER2. And you see a cleavable linker that can be broken, and then you see the payload. And that payload is DX8951, which obviously, obviously you think about all the time. And this is a very potent payload. It is a topoisomerase inhibitor. Next slide. Anti-tumor effect of DX8951. This goes back to 1997. 1997. It was a good year back then. Still, I still have a fondness for the music of that era. It's a novel analog. And uh, it actually says somewhere in this that uh, this is several times more potent than SN38. So, you know, topoisomerase inhibitor, really, really potent. We'll come back to this, but this has been a payload that's been around for a while. Now it's tethered loosely to a trastuzumab-directed antibody. We'll come back to this. We'll come back to this. They busted out the new Ventana. This is the Ventana HER2. They said uh, for investigational use only in their, uh, in their manuscript. This is what they're doing. They've got this particular immunohistochemistry assay. Now listen, I'm not an expert on the kinds of dyes you squirt on paraffin or fresh tissue. If you are, if you've got some thoughts, you're listening to Plenary Session, you're a fan of Plenary Session, you're a histopath person, and you know all the intricacies of the Ventana HER2 assay, you drop me an email. You can email me at my website, www.nikprasad.com, the contact me link. You tell me what you know, and, and if and if, if you got something that you want to say, you can come on the show and we'll talk about it. But this is the gist of it. We all know IHC3+, they're not eligible. They're considered HER2 positive. IHC2+, in this study, they look at that fish ratio. If it's over 2, of course, that's also HER2 positive. Um, this is the assay that they use. For a moment, I had a momentary thought. And I, uh, I'll come back to that. 
And basically what they're saying is if your HER2 fish ratio is over two, you're also ineligible. If your IHC 2 plus and that ratio is less than two, you're eligible. If your IHC 1 plus, you're eligible. IHC 0, of course, you're not eligible. So this is the group in the middle. And by some estimates, it's a sizable chunk of people. It's like 40% of people. Now, the next in complexity comes in. Okay, this is a bit of a complexity. This study is expected to enroll you know, so many patients, physician choice versus the new drug. After approximately 60 hormone receptor negative patients have been enrolled, further enrollment will be limited to subjects with hormone receptor positive disease. After approximately 240 hormone receptor positive subjects who have not had prior CD4, 6 inhibitor have been enrolled, further enrollment will be limited only to subjects who have had prior therapy with a CDK4, 6 inhibitor. So they want to make sure they've got enough people who have had CDK4, 6 inhibition they're going to do okay on that metric. They don't want to have too much triple negative breast cancer. Okay, it's getting a little bit complicated, but this is it. HER2 IHC status will be stratified by this, that, the number of prior lines of chemotherapy, one or two, and the whether or not you received a thing, drug like palbocyclib. Okay, investigators have to choose one of the control treatments for each subject before randomization. All right. They got to choose it up front before you get to know what you're, what you're going to get. The primary endpoint was, as God intended, progression-free survival. It's always progression-free survival. If only there was a moment in breast cancer history where we learned that progression-free survival wasn't a good endpoint in metastatic breast cancer. When was that moment? Ah, Vastin. I remember it well. Remember it well. Well, you know, it is what it is. But this trial will also have an OS endpoint, and they looked at that as a secondary endpoint. Key secondary endpoints, PFS in all patients. Now, when you look at PFS in one group, and then you look at it not in the excluded group, but in everybody, this is called a nested subgroup analysis rather than an adjacent subgroup analysis. And the person you have to read on this is, is Sunny Kim and I. We've done two papers on this topic, nested versus adjacent subgroup analyses. Key secondary endpoints, PFS in everybody, overall survival in the hormone receptor positive cohort, then everybody. Secondary endpoints include investigator-assessed PFS, confirmed objective response, durational response, et cetera, et cetera. So these are the primary endpoints, and they're going to end up hitting the ball out of the park for all of them. So we need not quibble. We need not quibble. Okay, this is the rabbit hole that I fell down because I like to really get a sense of who is in this study. Who was in this study? What were the kind of prior treatments had they gotten? And then when they progressed on this new drug and they progressed on the control arm, what did they get? These are the questions that I always have when you have many, many drugs used in sequence and you're looking at the endpoint that I really care about overall survival, which this actually does sate. So I want to know what you got before, what you got after. I found two rules before I tell you the rules. You know, I'm reminded many years ago, there's all these like little logic puzzles and they say there's on one side of the on one side of the creek there's bob sue mary tom joe and bob and sue can never be in the rowboat together and mary and tom can never be left alone on a shore together and the rowboat can only seat two how do you cross all the people across the river so that all of these rules are met and everyone gets from one side to the other what are the steps how many steps does it take this kind of logic puzzle and i'll tell you what this starts to feel like that the first rule Eligible patients, eligible patients must have received chemotherapy for metastatic disease or had disease recurrence within six months of completing neo or adjuvant chemotherapy. Patients with hormone receptor positive disease must have 
must have received at least one line of endocrine therapy. That's right from the methods. And then the protocol, inclusion criteria number G. To be enrolled in the study, you ha- have to, has to be treated with at least one and at most two prior lines of chemotherapy in the recurrent or metastatic setting. If recurrence occurred within six months of neoadjuvant chemotherapy or neoadjuvant, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, the neoadjuvant chemotherapy would count as one line of chemotherapy. Targeted drugs such as mTOR inhibitors, PARP inhibitors, PDL1 inhibitors, histone deacetylase inhibitors, CDK46 inhibitors, and endocrine therapy on their own do not count, do not, do not contribute to the count of prior lines of chemotherapy. They don't count as chemotherapy, although regimens with such agents used in combination with chemotherapy would still count as one line of chemotherapy. Whew, okay, now we're gonna have some fun. This is where my head started to hurt a little bit. If you're hormone receptor positive, as the vast majority of people in the study are, you had to have gotten one line of endocrine therapy in the metastatic setting because they're not counting the endocrine therapy in the adjuvants and you had to gotten endocrine therapy in the metastatic setting. And if you are hormone receptor positive or negative, you had to get at least one or most two prior lines of chemotherapy. But if you recurred very soon after adjuvant chemotherapy, that counts. And then all those other drugs don't count at all towards lines of chemotherapy, but they could count towards lines of any treatment. We'll see. Okay. The rules. One more time. Hormone receptor positive. You had to get endocrine therapy. One to two prior lines of chemotherapy in the metastatic setting could get cyclin 4-6 kinase inhibitors, and 80% did get it from the table, roughly. Hormone receptor negative. You had to get one to two lines of prior chemotherapy. Okay. The big table. Table one. Now you can start to think about table one, as I spent a great deal of time thinking through, and I'll walk you through it. There's a hormone receptor positive cohort. 331 patients getting trastuzumab, duruxtecan, 163 patients get a physician's choice. All patients, 373 getting trastuzumab, duruxtecan, 184 getting physician's choice. Now you're cooking with gas. Prior therapies, CDK46 inhibitor, 70%, 70%, and 64% in everybody. 64% in everybody. Well, of course, that includes the triple negative people. Immunotherapy, 3%, 4%, 5%, 6%. Endocrine therapy, 99.7%, 99.8%. 98.2%, 93%, 89%, chemotherapy, 100%, 100%, 100%, 100%. And the lines, median is three, the range is one to nine. Okay, the number of lines of therapy, you know, I didn't think about that nine. I got to think about that nine too. Okay, we'll talk about it. Number of lines of therapy, one, and this is lines of therapy for metastatic disease, one is is uh, 7%, two, 25%, and three or more, about two thirds of it. Okay, whoo. Now we got to take these rules and apply it. Let's walk through this puzzle. Next slide. The first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to subtract out all patients minus hormone receptor positive patients to create what they should have presented a triple negative breast cancer cohort because these two are the two groups in there and this should add up to the total numbers. And I was about to do this when I remember Timothy was telling me that he had been working on some table. And I said, let me look at Timothy's table. And it was exactly what I had been thinking about doing. And so I just took Timothy's table. This is Timothy's table. But, you know, he's right. This is the first thing uh, a good reader of literature would do. Subtract this out so we get a sense. Okay, now let's focus on the hormone receptor positive population. Hormone receptor positive. Okay, so they've gotten four, six inhibitors and it's roughly you know 70 percent of people they've gotten some immunotherapy Hmm. i wonder why they've gotten endocrine therapy and they've gotten chemotherapy and here's what it says in the lines for metastatic disease about seven percent have only gotten one line 
So how do you get one line of metastat, one line of treatment for metastatic disease, and you had to have gotten a hormone therapy, and you could only get one or at most two prior lines of chemotherapy, but you don't have two. The hormone and the chemo is not two, it's only one. How does that work? And in my mind, I think the only way to solve this boat across the river puzzle is that these people had to have recurred after adjuvant chemotherapy within six months, and then their only treatment they got was endocrine therapy plus minus cyclin 4-6 kinase inhibitor therapy. That's all they got. They got dose-dense ACT, they recurred on month four, and then they got, you know, abemacyclib plus, you know, endocrine therapy or palbo plus endocrine therapy or just endocrine therapy. And then after they progressed again, they immediately went on this study. That's the only way I can see it. And if, I, and if you disagree with me, please put in the comments how you can get this one prior line of metastatic disease. Remember, adjuvant therapy, and they had to have gotten a chemo, and they had to get endocrine therapy. And the endocrine therapy has to count here as metastatic disease. The chemo could be the adjuvant therapy. I think this is the only way to solve the puzzle. Tell me if I'm wrong. So this is what these people got. Okay. The two people, the people who got two prior lines of therapy, I think they recurred they got an endocrine therapy plus minus a cyclin 4-6 kinase inhibitor, and then they got chemotherapy. That's the most likely. So they got one line of chemotherapy, which is, inc which is acceptable. The three or more, they only could have gotten at most two lines of chemotherapy. Okay, they only could have gotten at most two lines of chemotherapy, and then they could have gotten multiple lines of endocrine therapy, and they could have gotten cyclin 4-6 kinase inhibitor therapy. And so like they could have gotten endocrine therapy progressed and had that added, or they could have gotten, you know, endocrine therapy plus palbo progressed, got full vestrin, for instance, and then progressed and then got two chemotherapies and then entered the study. Okay. But you know, now I saw that nine, I really got to sit down and think, how could you have nine, but you can only have at most two chemotherapies. You must've gone through the Rolodex of endocrine therapies and, and, and other drugs to get to nine while only having two chemo. We'll have to think about that. I think this is fair. This is, these are who these people are. Tell me if you disagree. Tell me if I'm missing something in my little boat across the river problem. Okay. Now the triple negative breast cancer cohort. Here's it gets a little bit fun. Gets a little bit fun. Remember I've subtracted these. So we got 42, 21, you know, these are roughly the numbers. And what you see right off the bat, my first question is, you know, six and four have gotten palbocyclib or ribocyclib or abemacyclib. Why, why, why did they do that? Why did they give them that? Does anyone know? Could anyone comment below what, what is going on? Am I, am I missing something here? What, what's going on there? Immunotherapy. Now, of course, we do have Pembro, Frontline, Combination Chemotherapy, CPS over 20. Um, I think it's a bit low. I think it's actually supposed to be about 40% of triple negative breast. Tell me if I'm wrong here. Isn't, isn't that a bit low? But that's okay. You know, maybe, maybe they didn't always get all that Pembro. I don't, I don't have a big problem with that. I just want to know, do we, are, are we on the same page? We think that's a bit low. Endocrine therapy for hormone receptor negative breast cancer, 23%, 40%. WTF? Am I, am, I, am, I missing, am I missing something? Is the math somehow wrong? Am I missing something here? What's going on? What's going on that, that endocrine therapy is being given here? What's going on? I, I mean, I'm really wondering, am, am I missing something here? What, this is the only way the math works out. So we've really, we, and this has been triple checked, okay? Uh, either the something wrong with the math or something wrong with these docs because I, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what's going on here. Chemotherapy. They've gotten chemotherapy, but what percent have gotten platinum, okay? How many of these people have gotten um, PARP? 
Um, but really platinum, platinum for this one. Have they gotten platinum? That's very active in, in TNBCC. And how many have germline BRCA? I'd love to know that. Okay, now here's another puzzle, okay? How do you get three or more lines in the metastatic disease setting when you could only be treated with two lines of chemotherapy and your hormone receptor negative? How do you get there? Um, all those other drugs don't count. Are we talking they got olaparib and then two chemo lines? Olaparib doesn't count, so that could get you to three. Or are we counting that endocrine therapy, which by the way, why did we give? So, you know, I, I think there's a little bit of a puzzle here. Now, there's a way to solve the puzzle. What is that way to solve the puzzle? It would be called the, I don't know, the appropriate reporting of what you're talking about here. I mean, would it be so hard to tell me how many people had been treated in the adjuvant setting, how many people had de novo metastatic disease when you were treating the adjuvant setting, what were the treatments you got, how long between your adjuvant treatment and metastatic recurrence, how many people got what drugs, anthracyclines, taxanes, what do they get in the first line setting and the second line setting? Is it possible to give me some more granularity so I don't have to be, you know, this this lot logician puzzling over this? But I think, you know, they're purposely, I mean, let's be honest, they're purposely reporting. They're not reporting the triple negative breast separate. They're reporting it all together or hormone receptor positive alone. That's intentional. So you cannot see these things because I think if you saw these things, if you saw this, you might wonder what is going on. You might say WTF, what is going on in the, with this pretreatment? You might say that. If you saw all these people, hormone receptor negative, getting endocrine therapy, you might wonder what is going on. And I think they don't want you to wonder what is going on. They want you to think standing ovation time for you. Okay, they want you to think that. So I don't think they want you to wonder. So I think this is an issue here. This is an issue because I really don't have a clear sense of what is going on. What did they get? What percent of these patients are de novo? What adjuvant therapies did they get? How many lines of endocrine therapy? How much cyclone 4, 6 kinase inhibitor? How many prior chemos and which ones? Which ones did they get? Is that too much to ask? Mine, you know, how can I deconstruct a paper when you don't let me have any of the facts, okay? It's very difficult. Next thing I saw. Okay, in the physician's choice group, you get a five-way choice, but you don't get an unfettered choice. You know, Timothy has published a paper on physician's choice. They often get this restricted choice. When I go to a menu and I go and somebody invites me to dinner and they have a little card on the table so you can only order two things, I'm not happy. I want the full unrestricted menu. And similarly, I want that in my clinical trials, an unrestricted choice. And the company needs to just shell out the money and give people an unrestricted choice. But here they give it for aribulin, which is decent, but aribulin is typically a, you know, two, three prior lines of chemotherapy in the metastatic setting. Then you give aribulin, zolota, nab, paclitaxel, gemcitabine, paclitaxel. You know, I don't think that this is totally crazy, but I wonder where's my carboplatin? You know, I really do wonder where's my carbo. Where's my anthracycline? Some, some of us like an anthracycline. It's a very potent medicine in breast cancer. We'll come back to that. Here are the main results, the PFS. Five months to 10 months, PFS benefit has a ratio of 0.51. You see in the paper, they like to stretch it all the way out. But here I've put it in the proper aspect ratio. This is the right aspect ratio. Um, and this is what the supplemental aspect ratio had for triple negative. So I have hormone receptor on the top, triple negative on the bottom. And even though the sample size is small, I don't think you see any suggestion that there's a differential interaction here. I think it's all consistent. There's a PFS benefit. I think so. Overall survival, and this is what blew them away, 17.5 to 23.9 months, and 8 months to eight, 18 months in the triple negative cohort, in the hormone receptor negative cohort. I think, um, you know, 
Um, I keep calling it triple negative, but I'm just adhering to the old-fashioned way. I mean, you know, I guess it's low HER2 hormone receptor negative, but it is conventionally a triple negative. It's not HER2 positive, but okay, whatever. You call it whatever you want to call it. Hormone receptor negative. Um, you know, I think there's a signal there, even though that it's a small population. I don't see any reason to suspect a differential treatment effect. Um, but the moment I see overall survival, I want to know immediately what happened after people progressed. And you're taking me from about a five-month PFS benefit to a six-month OS benefit. It's getting a little bit bigger. And that makes me wonder a little bit about post-progression therapy. What is it? What is it exactly? I see that you are treating your hormone receptor negative patients with um, endocrine therapy. So what are you treating them when they progress? I mean, it seems to be a fair question to ask. The response rate of this drug, I got to say, there ain't nobody can deny got a good response rate. You got a good response rate in your new drug. 52%. Boom. I mean, it is an open label study. The only person blinded is the reader, me, because I don't know what they're giving before or after, but it's open label study. But that's good. I mean, that is good. And 16.3% investigator choice. I don't know. It's, it's, it's within what we say, you know, 20% for, you know, multiple lines in, in breast cancer, um, you know, the hormone receptor positive cohort. I think that's, that's reasonable. Um, you know, here I've pulled some response rates, but these go sometimes in all comers, uh, frontline setting, you know, but, you know, I, I, I think that there's no way around it. I mean, I think that maybe they're a smidge low, maybe they should be 20 to 30%, and maybe some of these other drugs up there, you know, the ones that are in bold are the ones that you're allowed to choose, but, you know, doxorubicin, you know, that might arguably be a little bit better. It should be up there, particularly if people haven't gotten it. I, I don't know, because they're not telling me how many people got it. Um, but I, I got to concede, it's a very active drug. There's no doubt about it. This is an active drug. Let me say that again. This is an active drug. I, I, I do think it will have a role in this cancer, but, you know, should it be your go-to you know, uh, you have a hormone receptor positive patient in front of you. I think we'll come to this in the conclusion. You probably need to maximize endocrine therapy first. You need to give some chemotherapy. And when do you want to reach for this? Second chemotherapy, third chemotherapy, you know, how much did you really push the endocrine therapy? I think these are important questions. The ILD, the ILD, it's no joke. It's no joke. 12% ILD. The ejection fractions are look to me a little bit lower on the uh, on the experimental drug. Nausea, 73%. And this is in a clinical trial where you know these patients are uh, getting exquisite management and care for nausea, and they're coming in with uh, you know 73% anti-grade nausea. This is no joke. I mean, this has some real toxicity. And I think when you start drifting from the uh, incredibly curated cohorts of clinical trials to the everyday Americans that we'll have to take care of. I think these toxicity issues may play a big role, especially if this wants to claim all this market share. Cost. Michael Lamb, pharmacist. This is a, a good guy to follow. I think he's had some sharp, sharp tweets. Destiny Presto 4, Trastuzumab, Durux Tican, 100 milligram per vial, $2,909.40. At, you know, average surf body surf, uh, you know, it's, uh, this makes per kg, 75 kilograms, 405 milligrams, which is five vials. If you don't round, we're talking about $15,000 per per treatment. Uh, that's that's not nothing. And there, how many patients are there that fit this bill? Budgetary impact. This is going to blow the budget. And 12% ILD, how much will ILD management count? Yeah, and the paper said something like we were very proactive about early detection of ILD. You know, you do know that early detection of toxic side effects is not always the best way to interdict upon them. It's a testable hypothesis, but I haven't seen validation of that. But he's right. It's going to be incredibly costly, and it can come with some fair bit of toxicity. I saw that this Pedro, oh, I'm the only one who liked it. I mean, I'm the only person who saw it, and I only saw it when I was like, 
you know, when I put together this talk, I try to Google slides so that I can easily import them to my spreadsheet, but I didn't find any good slides, but I found a good question. Some questions for someone who's watching from afar. Is it practice changing for triple negative breast with only 58 patients? Good question. I think that um, it's weird. It's weird that they just included this. I don't see any reason why there's a differential interaction there, but it is really weird. And we do have Sekitusumab Govitikan, which I have other issues with in a paper I wrote with Timothy. Um, but I, I do think that we'll have to maybe put a pin in that, come back to that. Only 18% received taxanes. Where did he see that? I've been looking for that. I, I couldn't find that exactly. And anthracyclines, and I want to know that as well. Uh, this is an issue since their response rate tends to be higher. Oh, I think what he's saying is that 18% of people, their investigator choice was a taxane, because I'd love to know what they got before. And the reason they might not be getting taxanes as much now is that they have just progressed on a taxane. That would be a good reason, but I need to know that. Um, how about germline BRCA? Did they receive platinum? And that's an important question. Did they? He signed it best. I like to... It's sweet when you see people sign a tweet. Conclusions. My overall conclusions. And again, you know, I'm in the dark here. How can I judge a trial? I know nothing of what they got before. I played my little boat game with you. I subtracted. I told you a little bit about the triple negative breast cohort. They're getting, as you know, the standard of care therapy of endocrine therapy and cyclin 46 kinase inhibitor. I don't know why they're I don't know why they're getting it, but it makes you wonder, makes you wonder about what's going on and what are the resources at some of the places they're enrolling patients. It does make you wonder. Makes you wonder if your post-protocol therapy is actually up to snuff or if it's just kind of a bon voyage send-off. Um, this is a very active drug. It's very, very active. One thought I had is, and this is a question for the audience, please tell me, does anyone know what happens if you just take the payload and develop the payload? I mean, they keep talking about this bystander effect, and of course, all the evidence I see for that is a cartoon they've marshaled, but, uh, you know, this this drug also has activity and I think totally HER2 absent disease. Is it possible that it just goes in, the payload dissociates somewhere, and then it just starts, boom, killing cancer the way topoisomerase inhibitors do? If so, what would happen if I just, you know, developed the payload? Has anyone tried to develop the payload by itself, naked payload? Um, you know, I know we love, uh, what is it, precision, everything is precision, but is it possible that the naked payload would do pretty good, maybe at a different dose? Does anyone know about the history of this drug, 1997 payload? Um, obviously, when you tether it to the antibody, you get a patentable compound, but is there... Uh, any development history of the payload? What happened to people before and after? I don't think you can really assess a study until you know about post-protocol care. And and who are the people who enrolled in this study? How do you get into the study in end hormone receptor positive? You had to have gotten endocrine therapy in the metastatic setting. You had to have gotten one to two cycles of chemotherapy, but you only have one line of therapy. How does that work? You had to have gotten that in the adjuvant setting, right? The chemo at least, but not the endocrine because that doesn't count. And then the endo plus or minus four, six, and then you had to enroll. I mean, is that right? Am I missing something? Um, we need to know that. How can you, how can you, how can anyone have standing ovation and not know? Um, you want to live with a, you want to live in the dark? Anthracyclines, platinum. Why restrict the choice? I mean, we're getting to five investigators. Why not just give a truly unfettered choice? Can we finally do investigator choice and it'd be a real unfettered choice? Um, pre-treatment information released, like uh, all that endocrine therapy and hormone receptor negative patients, um, and the CDK4-6 inhibitor therapy and hormone receptor negative, um, it really makes one question what's going on in these locations. What do they have access to? 
And that's really relevant for post-protocol because if you don't have access to anything post-protocol, a drug that improves PFS is also just more time on drug. And when you progress on the control arm in the real world, you get a different chemo, but here you might not get anything at all. And so that might even shorten overall survival on the control arm more than the treatment arm, which has a longer PFS, which is more time with chemotherapy. Um, and there's some stuff I've written about this in, in the book Malignant on the part on Cleopatra. Um, in the real world, I do think the benefit will likely shrink, both because people will have more aggressive disease. There's, there, I mean, trials, of course, obviously select for more indolent biology, and also that some of these things might play a, play a role. Of course, it was written by a medical writer. God forbid anyone write their own papers these days. The toxicity, I think, is going to be formidable. It's going to be a real deal in, in the real world. I don't, I don't think they've fully solved this problem. Um, but it is active, and I do think it will have some... I mean, I do think it ought to have some role. I'm just not totally sure what that role is. Total guess, but we got 17.5 going to 23.9 months, 6.4 month improvement in OS. Total guess, but but I wouldn't be surprised if a real world is about 9 to 12 that you're going to get out of this. Um and, you know, nobody was blinded except the reader was blinded. The reader was blinded to what they got before and after. Thanks to Dr. Timothy Olivier for looking at this as well. And uh, I, I took his table because I was about to make that table, but uh, I didn't. So what are my closing thoughts here? My closing thoughts. Well, you know, low HER2, huge market share. Super expensive drug, ILD, super expensive. We're going to spend a lot of money on this. Um, I'd love to see a dollar per quality uh, cost-effectiveness analysis. Um, I, wonder, uh, I wonder what they got before. I wonder what they got after. Another point is, can we see a breakdown of survival based on whichever one the investigator chose? Did aribulin do better than paclitaxel? Did aribulin do better than nabpaclitaxel? What about gem? What about Zolota? Did Zolota do the worst? Um, I'd love to know what people got before. Did anyone actually get Zolota, um, you know, post-neoadjuvant for positive path, path residual disease? Did anyone get anthracyclines before? Is there a reason why we're not giving anthracyclines? Did anyone get platinum? Um, these, are, these are questions I have. Why does somebody hormone receptor negative get hormonal therapy? These are eternal questions that may someday not be answered. Destiny breast, I think. I mean, I think it just uh, it just requires a lot more probing. I mean, this is an opening salvo. I see a glimpse of what it is, but I don't have a sense of what they did. Um, standing ovation, I think, is wrong, but uh, also it's not it's not going to get the shine treatment on this channel. I'm not going to say this is a at the outset a crazy thing to do. I don't see anything. I don't see any. I mean, except for the fact that some people got some strange pretreatment that you can debate. I don't see any real red flags here, um, and I, I I think it is, um, you know, possibly persuasive. It's super active. I mean, that response rate is blown out of the water. So they they don't have any reason to hide. They can tell us what went on. Well, you know, I'm sorry. This is uh, the best you're going to get um, with uh, maybe two hours of work. So Destiny Breast 4, my thoughts on it. Just some thoughts, how I think about the paper. We've covered so far in our ASCO plenary series, we've done, we've done Shine. We've done Dynamic, which uh, Dynamic was the one video that I see a lot of people say, before I watched your Dynamic video, I was gung-ho about it. I watched Dynamic, and yeah, you changed me. Shine, I hear a lot of people say, you know, why are you criticizing us for running a totally useless study? I mean, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you people in Shine. Come on, it was so you knew it was you knew it was bad. I also think I also got another interesting point on Shine, which is like, why did it take you so long to report these outcomes? Hmm. 
Hmm, why did it take you so long to report it? You could have reported it sooner. Hmm, what was your p-value doing all these years? I want to know. Um, we did determination, as in we're determined to find a reason to keep transplanting, even though transplant is on the ropes. And I talked to a myeloma expert who said that it ain't looking good for transplant. And now we're doing um, Destiny Breast 4. I really want to do the Luis Diaz paper on um, on uh, Dostarlimab, or that PD-1 inhibitor for locally advanced rectal cancer. I really want to do Teclistimab. Um, I think that's an interesting bite that's coming in myeloma. Um, and I and I think that uh, anything else, you know, put in the comments, email us if you have suggestions. I'm going to do that. If you're a fellow doing Journal Club, I hope this was good preparation to you. Good luck. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and that's all. Until next time on the Plenary Session Podcast, uh, follow us for the, the most incisive oncology dissection. Read the book, Malignant, if you want to be a better reader of oncology trials. And uh, until next time.